up and down the old homestead The naked rider gallops through his head And although the moon isn't full He still feels the pull Still feels the pull Hello and welcome to episode 1169 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Ryan Braun said he might play second to base. <laughs> I saw that. So I'm I just want to note, I'm just going right to the point here. Ryan Braun <laughs> came up third baseman. He was a third yeah. baseman. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 2007, Ryan Braun, third baseman, much younger, 10 years younger, 11 years younger, I guess, 945.1 major league innings at third base. Third base considered roughly equivalent defensive position to second base in terms of degree of difficulty. Negative 32 defensive runs saved. Oh, you don't love DRS? Not the stat of choice for you. Well, then let's turn to ultimate zone rating, which puts him at negative 28.5 runs. As a third baseman, but if you like and use like ER one fifty, basically, uh, yeah, a little less, a little less than less. a full season, nine hundred forty five. <laughs> okay. I think standard would be like, yeah, I don't know, twelve hundred, thirteen hundred. So Ryan Braun's UZR one fifty. That's a mes- estimate of UZR for a uh, hundred fifty games. So like a full season estimate, negative forty two point eight runs as a defensive third <laughs> okay. baseman. Ryan Braun. I didn't pull up the leaderboard, but I remember writing about this a long time ago at some point. I believe Ryan Braun has the worst defensive season on modern record. And we have that going back about a decade and a half. If it's not actually the worst, because I know Brad Hopp played the outfield once. It's a yeah. There was an Adam Dunn outfield season. Yeah, that was right. up there. It's a or down there. It's among them. So uh, Ryan Braun, <laughs> second baseman. Let's file it away as unlikely, but also file it away as holy hell. I hope we get to watch that happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing that was painful for me to watch happen. I hope you didn't see it because you were away this weekend. But on Friday. There was a post on the wife of Mike Trout, Jess Trout's Instagram. It was an Instagram story, so it was one of those things that disappears after 24 hours or something, which is probably for the best. But Mike Trout was on a trampoline on Friday. No! And, uh, yeah. No, no. I Nobody... <laughs> yeah. Nobody told me about this. Yeah, this was posted in the Facebook group, and I just I saw a screenshot of it, but it was Mike Trout on a trampoline. Serena Williams also recently on a trampoline. I mean, she's already the, the greatest of all time, but Mike Trout has some, some greatness to go here. He cannot be getting on a trampoline. We were tweeted at also this weekend, I think, by a, a regular listener who mentioned that someone in his family had recently suffered a trampoline injury. I, I believe someone in his charge and i i told him he was warned by us but uh, didn't heed that warning and evidently neither did mike trout so hopefully this was just an isolated occurrence i i've been monitoring rotor world updates i haven't seen anything about traumatic trampoline injuries for trout so i i assume that he survived but very dangerous and this seems i mean forget about atv accidents and and riding various motorized vehicles i mean if you have those things written into your contract as something that you're not allowed to do you would think that there would be trampoline clauses we've we probably discussed this before gun discharges bullet into man what do you if you're playing with a weapon that's going to injure you it's going to injure i just don't why would mike trout why would the angels why would his part it's ryan braun is the fourth word uh i don't even have the heart to bring this up anymore 
that's that's <laughs> great. It's a it's a grave disappointment to me. I am yeah. not attempting to exaggerate here. And also, I don't know what kind of trampoline we're talking about. If it's one of the, it, what was it, what was he doing? What was he doing on the it trampoline? It looked like it didn't look like a backyard trampoline. Yeah. It. I mean, again, I'm going off a screenshot here, but mm-hmm. it looked like a a trampoline park kind of thing mm-hmm. where it was like a a pad that you bounce off of. So uh-huh. yeah, it was and there's a bunch of metal bars, padding, but. Between them? Uh, probably. Hard to tell, but uh, I'm sure there were. Yeah, there's always yeah. Uh, the thing that you can land on and hurt yourself. So. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, so <sighs> Ryan Braun, fourth worst season in uh, the last 16 years by Ultimate Zone rating. That is not by Ultimate Zone rating per 150. That's just fourth worst. Fourth worst, it's uh, behind 2008 Brad Hopp, 2005 Bernie Williams, and 2007 Ken Griffey Jr. Bernie Williams played fewer innings to get to that mark than Brian Braun, so file that away. But by uh, defensive run saved, Ryan Braun is tied for the second worst defensive season on record. 2010 Matt Kemp playing center field for the Dodgers shows up at negative 30 three runs that's bad but he played 1,346 innings. 2005, Michael Young, shortstop for the Texas Rangers, played 1,356 innings. He was at negative 32 defensive run saved. And, of course, Ryan Braun, right there at negative 32 with 400 fewer innings played than the two names in front of him. However, shout out to 2013 Yankees shortstop Eduardo Nunez, who achieved a negative 28 <laughs> <Yes>. in 608.1 innings. <laughs> well, in better Brewers news, Matt Albers is a member of the Milwaukee Brewers now, and they're ongoing bid to become i don't know the official team of effectively wild or something they have now added matt albers on a a two-year contract they should add ryan webb former brewer right ryan webb was a a brewer hopefully someone brings back ryan webb who i believe had surgery late last summer but he'll be back and in pursuit of that elusive save anyway that uh concludes the beginning of this banter but uh Please save your emails, by the way, about what would happen if Mike Trout had to play on a trampoline permanently or so. He would be dead. That's the answer. So even Mike Trout, I mean, he might be the best trampolinist out there given his other skills. I don't know. But the best trampolinist probably never gets on a trampoline. Yeah. That's the, the best way that you can treat a trampoline. Absolutely. So, right. The best offense is a good defense. Yeah. In better news and in, in more encouraging news, Chief Wahoo has one more year left to live, 2018, and then he will be done away with in 2019, at least uh, in the in the way that we're used to him. I think I read some kind of clause about how maybe you'll still be able to buy Chief Wahoo gear in some part of Ohio, but not on the MLB.com shop, I guess, for people who are so attached to that mascot. But you know, obviously, I, I think the the end has been coming for some time now. That's been clear, and it's nice that it is official now. It it would be nicer if it were an immediate implementation instead of you know we're acknowledging that this uh, racist distasteful mascot will be no more, but. Not until 2019. <laughs> We're still going <laughs> to go through one more year with, with Chief Wahoo. You know, I guess to try to be charitable here, not that we really need to in this case, I, you know, I, I guess it would take some time to strip away a mascot that's been used for decades from every possible place that that mascot could be. And maybe it's a little late in the off season to order new uniforms and everything, but, you know, they, they could have done it years ago. They could have done it at the beginning of the off season. Anyway, that's not really an excuse. So 
it's finally happening now and it's nice that we'll be able to stop talking about this in 2019 although i'm sure that we will then transition to perhaps talking about the name of the team which was also then invoked in the report about chief wahoo and once chief wahoo is gone maybe that will only increase the pressure to change the name but that is maybe a, a secondary concern relative to chief wahoo which was extremely embarrassing yeah you have to address the blatant racism before you address the underlying socially more subtle potential racially insensitive subject matter i would say uh maybe we can uh we can posit here that the we uh, label the the chief supporter of keeping chief wahoo as being the chief yahoo of uh (laughs) of the crowd Uh, i think when i read the uh the part about the the indians being able to still sell gear with the logo i initially read that as a distasteful concession but i think somebody who has better understanding of trademark law could help me on this one but then i read in another article that they have to do that basically in order for the indians to hold the trademark and prevent other people from basically taking it and then Uh. being able to use chief wahoo for themselves and so maybe what this means is that the indians will be allowed to use it i don't know if they have to then make merchandise available with it but you know you can always bury it or i guess maybe they don't have an interest in burying it i'm not really sure it does feel weird to have it delayed until 2019 because i mean i don't know i haven't been to a game in a progressive field so i don't know if chief wahoo is just like painted on all the bricks everywhere in the ballpark i don't know (laughs) if he's like embedded on every seat i doubt that he is but i mean it's it's january and if we're talking about patches on a uniform you just take them off Mm -hmm. if they're even on there now i was walking by safeco field over the weekend and on the uh on the western side of safeco field they have a bunch of like doors and stadium features that just have pictures of players on the team you know like the popular ones not like the mark zipchinski but like there's (laughs) there's ben gamble over there and there's nelson cruz and mike zanino but gerard dyson's picture is still up and somebody else's picture is still up who i forgot danny valencia he's he's still there his picture i forgot that he's even a baseball player his picture is still on the side of the stadium and it's january so those things are going to be amended between now and mm-hmm. a couple months from now so yeah it's weird to have to wait a year for something so minor to go away but whatever can't be too disappointed because at the end of the day it is going away and i understand that there are probably some listeners who wish that it wouldn't go away but i think you'll be fine <laughs> yes i think so too and right i, I mean the the block c logo has obviously become much more prominent and wahoo has receded somewhat so you know it it's easier to make this change now than it once would have been but even so i mean you know you'd like to see it be immediate but at least we can stop debating whether this is the appropriate thing to do i think the team has now acknowledged that it is or conceded that it is and i think that is uh the only reasonable opinion to hold at this point so I'm glad that that moment has finally come, or at least we know when it's finally coming. So we have two guests to get to later in this episode. We are going to talk to Stephanie Springer of the Hardball Times about her recent article about baseball pseudoscience. Then we're going to talk to Effectively Wild listener Michael Mountain about his ambitious and possibly ill-advised plan to tour every big league ballpark this summer in a span of 35 days. But before we do, I wrote about baseball, (laughs) so (laughs) I feel like we should take a moment to mark the occasion. It's been a while, but we teased this on our last episode that we would talk about this, and my article on the topic is up now, so you can go read it, but I will summarize it first. We've been getting email questions for a while now about what will happen if... 
the free agents don't get signed, all the unsigned free agents who are still out there, some fringy, some very prominent. What will happen if they're not signed when pitchers and catchers report, when the rest of the teams report, when opening day is approaching? And, of course, Jeff Passan reported late last week that some players have discussed starting their own free agent spring training camp just to sort of stay in shape and have somewhere to play while they're waiting to hopefully sign somewhere. And there was no mention in that report of a previous instance of this happening, but... There is one, and I was not aware of this until fairly recently. You and I were pretty young when the strike was going on. I don't remember being aware of this at the time, and I've talked to plenty of people who were around at the time and paying close attention to baseball who forgot this. So I think it it has largely receded from many people's memory, but... There was a spring training camp for free agents in the spring of 1995 coming off of the strike. Obviously, there were a lot of players left unsigned that spring just because of all of the labor strife and the various back and forth and the sort of signing freeze that happened for a while there, the... Various uh, stages of that process are, are detailed in my article if you want all the details, but they did this. They got the free agents together. Everyone who was still a free agent was invited to come to Homestead, Florida, where there was a, an unused spring training facility that had been meant for the Indians, but had been then mostly destroyed by Hurricane Andrew, and the Indians decided not to play there, and so there was this unoccupied facility and lots of well-known free agents went down there and they hung out for basically the entire month of April and it was almost like a, a gym class sort of situation where you just wait around to be picked and eventually a lot of the players were most of the players were but there were something like 60 guys who were down at this camp at various points of that month just waiting for someone to sign them and it was this strange footnote this weird blip in baseball history that I really enjoyed learning about. So I, I talked to Jackie Moore, who was the manager of the team, longtime baseball person. I talked to Lloyd McClendon and Tim Belcher and Jay Howell, a few of the players who were there. And uh, it was really interesting to hear them reminisce about this unique episode in baseball history that hopefully will remain unique. As you are working out at free agent training camp, are you, relative to a player who's on a roster, are you putting forth greater or lesser effort you know are you yeah, trying not to get hurt or right. are you trying to get noticed i was curious about that I, I asked the players about that and they said probably if you watched like the the team practices like drills probably it would look like guys were taking them less seriously than at a typical spring training camp but in terms of like individual guys getting their work in they told me that people were working if anything harder mm -hmm. than they would in a typical spring training which makes sense obviously you're you're auditioning for teams and there were scouts there to see these players and you're trying to show that you're healthy and i mean it it really ran the gamut there were younger guys middle career guys there were guys who were at the very end of their careers like tim belcher i talked to he was available for a few reasons he was coming off probably his his worst season certainly to that point he had led the major leagues in losses and he was also just trying to get out of the American League because he he didn't want to pitch there anymore because it didn't treat him very well. So he was kind of waiting for a, an NL team to offer him something. So he was only 33 at the time, and he ended up pitching several more years in the majors, whereas 
Jay Howell, who was a you know three-time All-Star closer, but at that point was 39 and was really kind of, you know, he didn't have a lot left, as he acknowledged to me, and he ended up retiring at the end of the camp because he just didn't get an offer. But for most guys, it, it really did work out, and they were putting the work in because they were trying to show that they deserved a spot. And there were some pretty, like, surprisingly good players. I mean, well-known players who were mostly kind of over the hill at that point but you know like Benito Santiago was there he had just turned 30 he was still a really good player Mickey Tettleton had just been an all-star the season before was still a really good player so some guys just kind of got crowded out by the numbers game of the strike and just needed somewhere to go and the Players Association stepped up and, and organized this camp because no one else would have. Essentially, it was like too big a job for agents to to do on their own. And so they would scrimmage and they would practice and do drills and they would play junior college teams. High school teams would come in just because they were in kind of a, an isolated part of Florida relative to other spring training teams. So they were just, Belcher said, like, we were on an island, and they were telling me how weird it was, but they kind of think back fondly on it for the most part. It, it sounded like it was fun, like guys would just go golfing and fishing, and they were all in this shared predicament, obviously, of, of being unemployed. So, I mean, they all said they kind of look back on it fondly while also still hoping that it doesn't happen again. <laughs> as the as the numbers dwindled and the camp would drop below, even like the the number you need to field an active roster, what uh, how were the conditions in your findings at, at that point? Because, you know, of course, at first, as, as players start getting signed, then it can be encouraging and you think, I could be next. And, the, right. the, and the, all the players can still function as a giant group. But, you know, you get down to 40, then 30, and then into the 20s. What do you what do you do? Yeah, well, definitely as it got down toward the end and opening day was approaching and the players could kind of read the writing on the wall, it got frustrating and depressing and disappointing. And obviously they'd been watching players get signed for weeks and, you know, were happy for them, but also maybe a, a bit envious at a certain point. So, I mean, I think at the end of the camp, there were still, you know, 20 guys left or 15 guys left. And some of them did get offers and ended up with teams after that. And some of them just went home and called it a career. But the atmosphere definitely changed as time went on. And and Jackie Moore was telling me he was he was the manager of the A's for a few years in the 80s and has coached for everyone. He was in baseball for almost 60 years and so he's sort of seen everything but had not seen this and so he was telling me that like he would just you know he'd hear on the news at night that he had lost a player basically and it was like totally different from your typical spring training where obviously you want to keep your players and in this case he wanted to lose all of his players and wanted the scouts to to pluck these guys out and would be advocating for them and then he'd go home and he'd hear like so and so signed somewhere or he wouldn't hear even and he'd show up the next day and he'd just walk around like putting check marks and X's next to people who were still there or not there. So <laughs> it was definitely a, a strange environment. And, you know, like all these players lived through a much more intense time for, for labor strife when there was the threat of a strike or an actual strike in every round of bargaining. And they were saying that, you know, they don't think things have nearly gotten to that point today even though there is this growing unrest and Kenley Jansen even said over the weekend maybe we'll have to strike so people are talking about this obviously and we talked to Jeff Passan about it recently and if baseball's market is sort of fundamentally dysfunctional right now then 
you do worry about something happening and the CBA is up, what, 2021. But all these guys were saying, you know, that even now, even as this unrest seems to be building, it's nowhere near where it was. And Players Association is, you know, softer in a sense than it was then. I I talked to Donald Fear, who was the head of the Players Association at the time as well. And, you know, I mean, that's maybe why the players are in this predicament today is is that they haven't been hardliners the way that they were then but we're still quite a ways away I I talked to a woman named Alan Price who's been with the Players Association for decades and she helped organize that homestead camp and she still works there now and she was saying that apart from the fact that there are still many free agents unsigned she doesn't see that many parallels between now and, and 1995 just because the toxic atmosphere at that time isn't really in place now and you know i i hope that remains the case but you can certainly envision a scenario where a few years from now when the cba is actually up tensions will have risen back to that point agreed all right well i will link to that story if you want to go get all the details and quotes from the players in the facebook group and also in the show page at fangraphs but we will take a quick break and we'll be right back with stephanie springer So just last week, I saw on Instagram Bryce Harper's back covered in cups. So many cups, I couldn't count the number of cups. His cups raneth over. And in a bit of excellent timing, there is an article at the Hardball Times on Monday by Stephanie Springer. It's called From Cupping to Cold Water, A Review of Baseball's Pseudoscience. And one of my favorite podcasts, The Gist, does a regular segment called Is This Bullshit? where the host, Mike Pesca, brings in Maria Konnikova. They talk about whether something is fake or false or pseudoscience and That's what we're going to do. We're going to do is this bullshit baseball edition or maybe just this is bullshit baseball edition. I don't know (laughs) if there's actually any suspense here, but Stephanie is an organic chemist turned patent examiner, which frankly, I'd, I'd rather talk about that than baseball, I think. But this is a baseball podcast, so she is also a writer for the Hardball Times. Stephanie, welcome. Thank you for having me. So how did you get inspired to write about baseball pseudoscience? I guess I just I've had a lot of questions about some of the things that we we see the team is reporting on as far as how they're treating players. And I realized that no one else seemed to be really taking a critical look at what some of the practices they've been disclosing are. And, you know, the, the online baseball community is very critical and very happy to dissect lineups and um, bullpen usage, and I kind of feel that we really need to take that same critical eye and turn it towards some of the uh, the, the medical practices and or pseudo medical practices that um, baseball players are using. Mm-hmm. So I guess we can start with cupping since it's one of the the more prominent ones. So this, of course, became a big thing. It 
seemed to me, at least when Michael Phelps used it at the Olympics, he was one of the most famous athletes in the world at the time, won lots of gold medals, and he cupped. So what do we know about cupping and the risks and the possible or alleged benefits? Right. So cupping is this so-called treatment that has its origins in oriental medicine. And so it kind of relies on this idea originally that you're helping to, to manage your, your body's energy flow. More recently, people allege that by having this soft suction pulling from the cup, um, you're increasing blood flow to the area where the, the suction is created. Um, I think the closest thing that everyone can relate to as far as cupping goes is uh, you... <laughs> I think many people in their uh, preteen years probably tried to give themselves hickeys with vacuum cleaners. Um, <laughs> that's essentially what we're looking at here. Usually the, the, the glasses that they use, the glass cups that they use for the cupping procedure, they're heated. Um, and so you have this stimulation with between the heat and the, the gentle sucking action of the cup. There's a lot of mixed evidence, I would say, or lack thereof. And generally speaking, it, it seems to be one of those things where if practiced safely, it's probably not going to hurt you. It probably won't help you very much. And it's, it's tricky to say whether or not some of the, the, the benefits that, say, a player might feel from this. It could just be that he's, you know, he's, he's laying down for an extended period of time while he's undergoing this treatment. And, you know, how often do they actually have some quiet time where they're laying down and relaxing? I think that's Part of the issue here, though, is, um, again, as you said, with Michael Phelps, there was a burst of activity um, in the literature as far as baseball players saying, oh, we saw, you know, we saw Michael Phelps's uh, cupping marks. Uh, we, we do that, too. We, we love it. And I think then when I was reading through some of the stories that came out around that time, um, it turned out that it's not necessarily that someone who is skilled in this cupping, I would say, it's some, that someone skilled in this is administering the cupping, you started reading about players saying, I, I love it because I, I can do it to myself. My wife does it at home. Hmm. And I think that's where you, you start to get concerned. I hate to say that there's a, a wrong way or a right way of doing this when there's really no right way to do something that's not really effective. <laughs> but at the same time, you start seeing these players saying, oh, yeah, I, I put one of the, the heated glass cups on my elbow and I was like creating suction on my elbow and it, it made me feel so much better. It, when you look at the, the traditional practice, you see cups on, say, usually it's a back, kind of like what you saw with Bryce Harper, not that many cups. Yes, that was a lot of cups. Um, that was kind <laughs> of, that was a lot of cups. <laughs> and so it gets a little worrisome when you kind of think about players doing this to themselves at home on their elbows and on different body parts that maybe aren't really um, used to being subjected to even like a, a gentle suction. Mm -hmm. So let's say hypothetically, the, the question I'd like to get to is how something like this spreads, how something like this gets out. I don't know the origin of cupping uh, to the T, but let's say I am the practitioner of a, some sort of pseudoscientific or as I'll call it scientific technique that I've made up. Let's call it, I don't know, stapling. How do I get players to staple? What do you need in order for this to to get out, to proliferate? To really grow virally, the same. So <laughs> yeah. I think 
what you've seen with, um, especially because given that its origins are um, kind of in Eastern medicine, some players would go to Asia and then they would see this practice being performed in Asia in the clubhouses there. And then um, they'd come back to the U S and then they would find, they would tell their teammates about it. Um, They maybe had already participated in it when they were in Asia. And that's kind of how these things spread, I guess, just in general, like clubhouses, it's, you know, it's just a, a ripe environment for literal transmission of viruses, but also just for something like this to take off virally. I think when a couple of uh, Royals players had said that they had picked it up when they were in, I think, Korea, Matt Bilal had said that he had seen it in Korea. And then it's one of those things where as players move between organizations, they kind of maybe take the practice with them and, and then encourage other players to do it too. So between that and then say saying seeing Michael Phelps using it, that is going to encourage players to maybe give it a try. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned magnets in your piece too. You mentioned the the fighting necklaces that seemed to yeah. be everywhere a few years ago and don't seem right. to be now. And And you mentioned that they seem to have fallen out of favor a bit. And I was kind of encouraged by that, but now I'm not sure I am. I, I asked Brandon McCarthy if he agreed with that, and he did. He, he agreed that they are less common than they used to be. But he says that people have known that players have known for a long time that they don't do anything, but it was more of a look thing, which he says was also yeah. stupid. <laughs> but uh, but <laughs> it maybe it was a fashion accessory that just fell out of fashion. But it, I mean, it's definitely true that in the media, at least, as soon as those necklaces started appearing, they were getting debunked everywhere. And so I was imagining maybe there was some player who was going around, you know, printing out the debunkings for his teammates or something, but it <laughs> sounds like that probably isn't the case. It's possible. Um, I did notice when I was doing the cupping research, I, I saw that um, Peter Moylan had, had said that he, he gave it a try and he didn't really, he didn't see the point to it. So it was kind of nice to see someone actually say, yeah, I tried it and I, I don't know what the big deal is. <laughs> yeah. But there were a lot of players who who swear by it. And I would assume that there's a lot of players that, that don't believe in it or just choose not to say anything about it, which totally understandable. Mm-hmm. But magnets are still a thing in some form, as you also mentioned. Yeah, <laughs> right. So the fighting necklaces have definitely fallen out of favor. And again, it is one of those things where I would hope most people realize it didn't really do anything, but you know, they, they look kind of cool. So people wore them for a while. And like, you know, most fads, they, they come and go. I was really surprised by uh, the use of this magnosphere chair though, which basically alleges to provide the same thing that this magnetic jewelry was doing, except that, it's this, it's this huge chair with these big, big arcs of like metal just around the chair to help create a magnetic atmosphere around you. Mm. And I think looking at the, the company's website, this is where you get into one of those tricky things where, well, we're FDA approved, but the FDA approved them for, for calling themselves as providing enhancing relaxation. Um, it's there's, approved there's for no sitting, medical plan. basically. Yeah, and, you know, exactly. I mean, who doesn't feel relaxed when they sit down? So. Uh, well, how much do those things run you? Do you know how much your team's... I, I don't know. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Sounds expensive. I, have, I had never, I've never heard of a magnet chair before <laughs> I read your article, and I am floored by the concept of a magnet chair. Having now read your article Should and having now spoken one, to you, you, wouldn't be floored. Well, maybe I've been sitting one this whole time, just didn't realize it was magnetic. But did you get a set? How popular are these magnet? Are we talking like there's three players out there, or are these like in every clubhouse? I had actually, to be honest, I hadn't heard of this until um, I started doing research for the article. And I actually ran across an older Hardball Times article where um, I, th- I think it was in the, the Rockies clubhouse. I need to, or, or I'm sorry, not the Rockies clubhouse, but it was a player who who had one of these Magnosphere chairs in his house. Yeah, I had not heard of the Magnosphere chair prior to this. You know, one of the things that I kind of started thinking was, you know, maybe, oh, so it's AJ Pollock. So uh, maybe, you know, people kind of did feel kind of self-conscious about the fighting necklaces. And so now with a Magnusphere chair, you can kind of have the same feel, get the same alleged benefits, but in the privacy of your own home instead of out on the field wearing your fighting necklace. Why stop there? Why not a magnet bed? Just fighting furniture your <laughs> <Yeah>. entire house. <laughs> magnet bases, <laughs> magnet uniforms. <laughs> Those might be heavy, I guess, slow you down. But yeah, well, so you also mentioned heat and cold, which have obviously been staples of baseball player training routines for the whole history of of baseball, more or less. But they've recently graduated to maybe a, a different kind of cold therapy that has some dubious benefits or lack thereof? Yeah. So I think that the the cryotherapy is what really got to me as far as um, going from, you know, ice baths. That's, you know, that's pretty harmless. As long as you, you know, there was actually a really good article where they, um, the author talked to um, Ron Porterfield, who was uh, formerly the head trainer for the Rays. And he had um, this whole routine down as far as before the game, they alternate between hot and cold baths. And then after the game, we have them do the same alternation, but it's a slightly different pattern. Um, they're never in one or the other for more than a few minutes. And so then you have this whole body cryotherapy where these, these giant chambers that um, it, it sounds kind of something like like Han Solo um, being dipped in carbonite, right? <laughs> it's this giant chamber where the player, his whole body, except for his head, is in, encased in this octagonal chamber. And so this is another one where I was really surprised to see, I think, that the Marlins and uh, the Royals both purchased units. Wow. The Marlins, they have a lot of disposable income these days, I guess. How many units did they purchase with their revenue sharing money? <laughs> I, how, do you, how would you reconcile? We're, we're in an era now where, where teams are, everyone has staffed out their analytics department. So teams are trying to figure out where else they can get an edge. And we've seen teams talking about investments and like constant blood testing and nutrition and sleep studies. And teams are, are trying harder than ever to try to keep their players healthy and just physically optimized. This is true in baseball. This is true outside of baseball. So how do you, how do you reconcile that sort of drive with this proliferation of pseudoscientific techniques, even in clubhouses, even with organizations like the Tampa Bay Rays, who you would, you at least would want to think stereotypically would be at the forefront of this is right and this is not right? Well, I think that you have to weigh a lot of different factors. So say, for example, the cryotherapy units, to me, I, I don't know how much those cost. It seems like a lot of money that could be spent elsewhere. I do think that people are looking more at like sports science initiatives, mm-hmm. whether that's injury analytics 
injury prevention. I think there's more of a, a look to it. We're focusing more on nutrition, I would say. So like, for example, um, I know it came up when he first joined the Dodgers and kind of came up again when he, he came to the Phillies, but like Gabe Kapler's blog, mm-hmm. he does a great job of really pushing for nutrition and just, you know, eating a well-balanced diet. So I think that that's something something that a lot of teams could look at to um, really make strides as far as keeping players healthy. And of course, that I think would be a better investment than uh, a whole body cryotherapy machine or, or cupping. Yeah, I'm reading about the the cryotherapy in your article and the risks of, uh, wow, these (laughs) frostbite, burns, asphyxiation. (laughs) This uh, this sounds not very therapeutic. Yeah. And so, you know, there was even a death last year, I believe. And it, again, that was a case where this woman was self-administering, essentially. She got in the machine. She thought she had set the timer. She fell asleep in the machine, which when you consider um, the way the machine operates, it's not out of the realm of, of possibility that you will get knocked out. And then there was a malfunction and she had fallen asleep. So she, and she froze to death, which obviously is is an extreme, but you could see too, even if you were to say, well, I'm not going to do whole body cryotherapy. I'm just going to do cryotherapy on say my, my, my pitching arm. What if you get frostbite on that arm? And so when you really consider that there's no evidence that this is efficacious, are you really willing to take that risk? And so I think that's where we have to start balancing the, the idea of what, okay, so some things are going to be harmless and they're pretty low risk, but there's things where they really don't provide any benefit. And if there's an accident, it could be really bad. It could be, you know, anything from just a 10 day stint on the DL to losing a season. And you really have to weigh all of these different factors. Mm-hmm. I cannot imagine Clayton Kershaw missing a season with frostbite, <laughs> but I guess there's always going to be. Would you, how would you characterize, I guess you're touching on this now, but how would you characterize the risk of these techniques sort of proliferating within the, the professional athletic sphere? Because, you know, odds are if you're going to have a, a cryogenic chamber that players are using, it will be administered in the clubhouse in Kansas City or Miami or, or elsewhere. Someone will set a timer. No one will fall asleep and die probably in a clubhouse with uh, with cupping, it seems clearly there's risk of, of burn, potential infection, but it seems like the, the risk of a real long-term problem is tremendously low. And so aside from players just practicing techniques that don't have a very good foundation in truth, and that being objectionable from an objective viewpoint, is this like a, a role model problem, a problem of just supporting industries that shouldn't exist, or how would you characterize it? I think it's a it's a combination of different things. Um, I think uh, so. One thing I I didn't really talk about in this story was um, the use of um, hyperbaric oxygen chambers. Mm. I I honestly didn't even realize people still used those because I thought I mean they've been debunked for so long now. But it turns out there are baseball players that still use hyperbaric oxygen treatments. And so I think that with kind of giving that a quick look, I realized that some of what propagating that was just the, the manufacturers of this equipment, right? So even like the um, the whole body cryotherapy unit, I ran across that information just based on the manufacturer saying, oh, we just sold a unit to the Marlins. We just sold a unit to the Royals. So, you know, for the manufacturers, they're they're constantly pushing these goods, and so it, they can kind of advertise you saying, "Well, we have professional athletes using our equipment." Um, and then the other thing too is, again, going back to things spreading through the clubhouse. 
just word of mouth. And then that's something where it's really tricky because let's say, so someone says, you know, I like cupping it really, it makes me feel good. And so then they, they tell somebody else, well, you know, give it a try. It's not going to hurt. And I think you get into one of these things where let's say somebody tries it and that day they have a great game. It's not without, it's easy for someone to start thinking, well, I, I gave this a try. Maybe this is what helped my performance today. And so I think that's where you kind of see a lot of a lot of these ideas and practices that aren't really rooted in scientific evidence. That's how these things kind of spread. Another thing I, I wanted to touch on, but I didn't want to single him out, but I guess I will here. You might have heard about Rich Hill peeing on his blisters on his hands. Yes. Um, this is, a, so, right, this is a, so, a Rich Hill safe zone. You should always feel free to, to mention Rich Hill on this podcast. <laughs> So when I, I was reading about that, um, it, apparently he had heard that from another player, and so he decided to give it a try. And for all you know, next season, we might hear about somebody else saying, well, you know, I was having problems with blisters, so I, I decided to try peeing on my hands. And maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. Um, I guess the way to think of something like that is, let's say you have a cold. Um, you could take echinacea, you could take vitamin C, and your cold will probably go away within a week. Or you could take nothing and your cold will probably go away in seven days. <laughs> it's one of those things where you just, you can't really say for sure if it's really helping, especially when, I mean, essentially you're looking at small sample sizes, right? <laughs> and, and a lot of anecdotes where players pass this information on to each other just because it, it might have helped them. Uh -huh. I think Moises Alou and Jorge Posada were also known for peeing on their hands. It was cheaper than batting gloves, I guess. Although uh, Posada said he did it in spring training only, I guess, to alleviate the, <laughs> the calluses that build up after a, a long off-season off. So anyway, we all make fun of you know Tom Brady's sort of nonsensical. <laughs> <laughs> That's been a, a common topic lately, and we've covered a, a number today, but that doesn't mean that we we should dismiss any kind of treatment or therapy. Obviously, there are some that work. You mentioned yoga in your article. You mentioned diet and nutrition and customizing those in certain ways. And as there are just more and more ways that players are tending to themselves and teams are tending to players, I guess there's more risk for pseudoscientific ones to creep in. But more and more, you mentioned the sports science and all sorts of wearable technologies and you know sensors that measure everything about your workout and your sleep and you know we've talked about like the pirates have sleep you know nap rooms and sensory deprivation chambers and so i guess you know it it makes sense for teams to try a lot of things and some of them might work but you just have to be careful <laughs> that you don't end up yeah. hurting anyone <laughs> Right. And, and that's the thing. I mean, any you want to try whatever you can to give you any sort of edge. So even if there's something that it might not work or there might not be a lot of evidence for it, you might as well give it a try. Um, and that's when you have to weigh the risks. And something like cupping, it can be dangerous. And it probably doesn't help that much. But overall, it's probably okay. It's just not really doing anything. So it's that's where you kind of have to weigh weigh all this stuff where, you know, if it makes them happy, <laughs> it makes them feel good, maybe it's not so bad. So would you say with, with something like cupping or these other techniques, recovery techniques, that it's, is this just going to be sort of a recurring 
human problem as it's uh, athletes trying to fill a void where maybe you talk about how even using a basic ice pack remains controversial. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. And that a player might be frustrated if you're a starting pitcher and you throw 100 pitches and then you're you're really sore a couple days later, then maybe you're going to be willing to try something to maybe try to make the soreness go away when the reality is that you're just going to be sore because you put your body through the grinder. You threw 100 pitches the other day and there's nothing you can do about that. But given that you really can't make your muscles unsore if they've been strained or used exhaustively, is this just going to be players forever searching for some sort of solution that, at least from where week sitting out isn't going to exist for a very long time just a, a perpetual motion machine of pseudoscientific medical techniques yeah i think it is i mean it's just human nature um and especially when you're a competitive athlete you're gonna try anything to to get ahead and in some cases you know especially like going back to like a pitcher they probably just need some rest they just need to to not give it a hundred percent and for, I think when you're you're a competitive athlete and you're you're constantly told you you're constantly hustling and you're supposed to be grinding everything out, it's really hard to just say you know I need to just let my body rest and recover. Um, you want to try something. You want to feel like you're doing something to really help. So in in this sense, I think a lot of these these sort of scientific interventions. Again, I think that kind of just goes back to the placebo effect where, you know, if it's not going to hurt them and it makes them feel better, whether it's just they feel like they're doing something or it's just a nice massage, I think it's one of those things where it's going to be really, really hard to get a group of superstitious people to to stop doing something, even if there's no evidence to support that it it actually is effective for anything. Hmm. All right. Well, more importantly, have you examined any patents about baseball? <laughs> um, I I have not, but I've had a lot of scientific treatments <laughs> run across my docket. So I'm I'm really used to people saying that certain things work for treating all kinds of things, and it usually doesn't work. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, so do you have to give them? I mean, does the patent require any evidence that it does work, or is that not your area? Yeah. So no, it is. So I think one thing when people think of patent, you think of utility, novelty, and non-obviousness. Mm-hmm. The other thing that people don't really think about, which is actually what I spend most of my time on is you really you can't just claim something without showing that you that it actually works Mm. you can't just say i have this idea you have to support it with some kind of examples showing that you can actually treat a disease with the way you say you can and so i think that coupled with my my typical i'm i'm a very skeptical person to begin with (laughs) I think it, it really feeds into to my looking at these uh, scientific treatments with uh, the same critical eye. So, mm. so if the magnet chair is patented, does that mean there was a less skeptical patent examiner <laughs> out there than you are? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it's patented. It might be patented for extreme relaxation or enhanced <laughs> relaxation, whatever the FDA says. Yeah. But. I would hope no one said that it could it could actually treat any kind of injury. <laughs> I see. Extreme gravity relief. All right. <laughs> well, I could talk about patents more, and I'm sure Jeff could talk to you more about chemistry, but I guess we should let you go, and uh, people can find your work at the Hardball Times. They can find you on Twitter at Stephanie Kays, K-A-Y-S. You are also nominated for a 
Saber Award for Contemporary Baseball Analysis in the same category I am. This, this category is <laughs> not big enough for the both of us, but I would recommend everyone go read that article of Stephanie's too, which it's called Get a Grip. It's about the surface of the baseball and seeing if there is a, a non-pseudoscientific way that you can get the baseball to be tackier, which is uh, really interesting too. So Stephanie, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we'll take one more quick break, and we'll be back with Michael Mountain to talk about his 35-day, 30-ballpark planned trip for this upcoming summer. Road tripping with my two favorite allies, fully loaded, we got snacks and supplies. It's time to leave this town, it's time to steal away. Let's go get lost anywhere in the USA. All right, and now for something completely different. Earlier this month in the Facebook group, one of our listeners and Facebook group members, Michael Mountain, posted about his extremely ambitious itinerary for a whirlwind tour of every Major League Stadium. This coming summer, it's a ways away. He's planning this for July and August, but... It's nice to think about it. It's cold. There's no activity going on. There's no actual even spring training. So I just wanted to think a little bit about the warm summer when baseball will be going on and Michael will be attending lots and lots of baseball games in a very short amount of time. So I want to have him on to tell us about this plan and how he plans to put it in action. So hello, Michael. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So the obvious first question, why? Why would you subject yourself to this sort of uh, itinerary? I think a lot of people have kind of a, a goal in the back of their heads, if it's not explicit, to get to every major league park someday. But you are planning to do it in 35 days, which is uh, it's a little bit different. So how did you come up with this idea? Yeah, well, uh, for me, I think it started a lot like uh, you said, a lot of other people have the same sort of idea that it's on the bucket list for some point down the road. Um, you know, I've I've grown up as an Orioles fan and, and I've always been interested in, in visiting other parks as well. So for the last couple of years, I've been... why if you're an Orioles fan, you'd be interested in visiting other parks. <laughs> I mean, not to cast aspersions on Camden, which is which is great, but the actual product itself, not always so great. <laughs> Certainly. So so for the last several years, I have been slowly adding to my personal list, usually uh, you know, checking for uh, Orioles road games and, and other such things. So for example, in 2014, they played for a week straight in Chicago, both the North Side and South Side Stadium. So I got two for the, for the price of one as it as it were mm -hmm. but uh I've, i'm up to about uh, 15 ballparks visited currently uh, 13 of them active um, however most of the ones i'm still missing are a little more of an effort to get to from where i am so not uh, not just a simple day trip or or, or weekend um, a lot of the western division teams and uh, a few in the central and florida etc mm -hmm. so uh, i figured why not try to knock them all off at once and uh, just make a big uh, make a big go at it <laughs> so have you scheduled your your vacation time or did you have to save up to to have enough time to do this yeah actually uh this was originally something i was looking at working up for last summer um but uh, work got in the way a little bit so um <laughs> as you might imagine uh, yeah. i took the opportunity to build up some of that uh, bank some more of that vacation time and uh, this year i i should have all my ducks in a row yeah what do you do if you don't mind our asking <laughs> I work as a software developer with a consulting group. 
are you going around to have 30 different job interviews? <laughs> yeah. yeah. If I can turn this into some publicity, who knows? <laughs> well, that's probably a good segue into what my next question was going to be, which is how did you plan this? Because just logistically speaking, it is not easy to plan the most efficient route and not only the most efficient, but like one that won't kill you. So how did you actually determine the, the order that you would do this in? Sure. Just to start off, it, it's a little tricky to figure out exactly what you mean by the most efficient route, because of course yeah. there are two different things that you're trying to optimize for, right? First of all, you want to make sure that you're able to get around all the stadiums and back to your starting point in the shortest amount of time possible. Mm -hmm. uh, but then also given that constraint, you are also hoping to spend uh, as few hours actually on the road. So optimizing the travel distance within that. Yeah. It's sort of something that, that had been floating around uh, in my head as an idea for the last couple of years. It kind of started as just a fun exercise in trip planning. You know, I, I enjoy road trips in general, um, and uh, this seemed like a a good way to, to have a fun thought exercise and just see how efficient I could be in getting to all 30 parks and back. So uh, about three or four years ago, I started messing around with some spreadsheets and just Excel macros to try and come up with, with an algorithm that would get me most of the way there without getting too deep into the math. Uh, this is essentially a, a variant of a well-known optimization problem called the traveling salesman, mm. uh, which is finding the shortest possible route to traverse a set of destinations and then get back to the origin point. What makes the baseball version a little bit different is that, of course, you can't just go directly to the closest park. Um, you have to also make sure that the team is is playing at home at the right time. Yeah. So I had a couple of things to help me out in this search. First of all, someone smarter than me has already done some very helpful work in this space. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's uh, actually a book uh, written by uh, Ben Blatt uh, called I Don't Care If We Never Get Back. Mm -hmm. uh, back in 2013, he visited all 30 stadiums by car in 30 days. Mm. which is even more ambitious than my itinerary here. It's better uh, than you. <laughs> <laughs> ben is a, a former member of the Harvard Sports Analysis Collective, which is the same group uh, that produced your guest from earlier this offseason, the, um, yes. the Twins Director of Baseball yeah, Operations. Daniel Adler, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Ben wrote an article for them back in 2011, which detailed the uh, highly technical and rather nerdy process of finding this optimal trip using a process called linear optimization. Uh, in this case, our objective is essentially to minimize the total elapsed time between leaving the starting city and returning to it at the end of the trip. So the most interesting part of the article for me was that he actually included a detailed description of how to construct uh, that linear model, which can be expressed in a format that is just read and understood by an automatic solving program. And at that point, you just have to let it crunch for long enough to find an optimal solution. I was also indebted for that step to a web service called uh, Neos Server, which is the Network Enabled Optimization System. This is a free web service that offers computing time on a high-performance cloud at the University of Wisconsin, which can calculate solutions a lot faster than a regular home computer. Uh -huh. So um, when I first came across this approach, I tried running an, an open source solver on my home PC, and uh, it ran for about a month to get a pretty good solution. <laughs> so as long as you will be traveling, basically. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, whereas Neos was able to solve that same model in just a couple of hours. Oh. Supercomputers, so, pretty cool. You, uh, you have put in a lot of work to develop the uh, the plan. Uh, it's no longer, I guess, for now it's theoretical. This is the plan you intend to execute. Have you given any consideration to the thought that maybe, maybe the goal was to just make the plan? Because look, I, I'm talking to you as someone whose vacations are not usually spent 
relaxing. They're not leisure filled. They are slogs. Are you? Are you in any way prepared mentally, or do you intend to prepare mentally for the slog that this is certainly going to turn into over the course of five weeks? So I feel like I'm reasonably well prepared for this, um, about as much as you can be without going through the whole thing, sort of on two fronts. Uh, the one thing that, that I have in my corner helping me is that I have previously executed a shorter frenetic trip just doing four games in two days. Back in 2013, I found a, a midweek schedule alignment that let me catch a Wednesday Baltimore-Philly doubleheader by train. And then Thursday, uh, the Mets and Yankees were both at home on the same day. Um, so I've, I've had sort of a taste of some crazy uh, travel arrangements working around a set schedule of uh, ball games. And then from the sort of more long distance perspective, um, I've also done a couple of times back and forth uh, from Portland to Baltimore uh, by car in about three or four days. So that's averaging uh, about 800 or so miles per day, uh, which is longer than any single day's journey I have on this trip. It's obviously a longer total duration, but but I feel you know somewhat mentally prepared for the the slog of say uh, driving from my. Uh, Seattle to Miami in six days. I see. So it's like training for a marathon, sort of. You're you're building up to it. So you have what almost sixteen thousand miles would be the the total, and something like six hundred miles in the average day. So how much sleep are you building yourself in here, and how screwed will you be? A, if there's a really long game, are you allowed to leave? Do you have to see the whole game or is it just setting foot in the ballpark? And B, what if there's a rainout? <laughs> well, you've hit on two of my most primal fears here, Ben. So thank you for uh, getting that out of the way up front. <laughs> yeah, by far the most sort of dread-inducing part of the itinerary is the very first day where is my only scheduled doubleheader, mm. a one o'clock game at Yankee Stadium and a seven o'clock game in Philadelphia. So I have six hours between opening pitches and approximately two hours of driving to get. I'm looking at potentially maybe uh, taking an Amtrak Express for that if the schedule works out as well, which might be a little bit more efficient. But it is still obviously a, a concern, especially uh, for a Yankees game to, to go four and a half hours pretty easily. So <laughs> <laughs> there's not a lot I can do about that for that specific day. Um, in general, though, the constraints that I built into the trip finding algorithm are set up so that I shouldn't have to be leaving any particular locale before about nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, and I should be getting into wherever I'm spending the night by about 10 p.m. So depending on games going long, you know, I might have one or two nights where I'm driving a little bit later than normal, or, you know, if there's bad weather and I expect a traffic delay, I might have to, to get up and go a little bit early in the morning. But I feel like I gave myself reasonable margins uh, to not have to stretch it too thin. Mm -hmm. Have you considered what the triumph is going to feel like? Like what happens? The, thir the 30th game is over. You're done. You get home. At how much? Never how much time is? Again. <laughs> how, yeah, how much time is spent feeling celebratory, and how much time is spent thinking that that was a lot of time that you spent of your life? <laughs> well, uh, the last game is in Baltimore, so it's I, I don't have very far to go after the game at all, and it's on a Friday evening, so I'll have basically all weekend to sort of bask in the glow and, and you know <laughs> decompress and <laughs> take stock of. of what I've just, you know, how I've just wasted a month of my life. But uh. <laughs> if the last game is in Baltimore, where would you put the probability right now of you watching the Saturday game? <laughs> uh, 
Probably at about 0%. <laughs> or just maybe taking a joyride, just uh, going out for a, a quick drive on that day. Probably, yeah, that's probably not going to happen either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So have you managed to talk anyone into accompanying you for all or part of this odyssey or will you be doing all the driving yourself? Uh, well, let me put it this way. I think I'm prepared to do uh, most, if not all of the driving myself. Uh, I have been talking about potentially getting a co-pilot for the um, the Seattle to Miami slog, which as I mentioned is probably the most, the longest sustained run of painful driving uh, over the course of the trip. I have three of my six non-game days are during that six day stretch. Uh, and it's and averaging Marlins about game waiting for you on the other end. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I'm averaging 650 miles per day. Oof, man. Will you be adhering to posted speed limits during this drive? <laughs> Is it important that you do? Well, Is he allowed to say <laughs> for, I will, I will just put it this way that during that stretch, I will be driving through West Texas where I believe the posted speed limit is approximately 80 miles per hour. So I'm not that worried. Okay. Well, we're definitely going to have to have you back on at the conclusion of this trip, assuming you make it. <laughs> if you don't make it, that might be even more interesting. So either way, but I hope that we will have effectively wild fans greeting you throughout this trip because it seemed like when you posted this itinerary in the Facebook group, it's it's been a very popular post and lots of people are, are volunteering to hang out with you at games in their local city. So I'm, I'm hoping there's got to be an effectively wild fan at, at every big league game somewhere in the park, right? So hoping we can coordinate that. Maybe we can have you take a picture with random effectively wild listener at every stop along this journey. That'd be fun. Yeah, the response from the Facebook community was uh, was really overwhelming and gratifying. I got, you know, probably at least a dozen people or more, uh, you know, asking to stop in and, you know, meet up with them at a game or, or offer to get me tickets if they have season ticket plans, etc. So um, I'm, I'm definitely uh, grateful to the community for uh, reaching out to, to help support me in this. And, and I am very much looking forward to uh, hopefully making some new acquaintances during the course of the trip. Yeah. Can we can we make an agreement here? It would be nice to have you on when you're done. I would also like to have you on after game like 16. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you hit the wall, wherever that is. Hopefully not a literal wall at any point, but figuratively well, speaking. I, I might not be as uh, lucid a guest at that point, but uh, I, I would be delighted to have the opportunity to uh, record a podcast from a Honda Fit, which is not something that's been done for a while on here. Yeah, that's right. It's the... Uh, <laughs> the official Effectively Wild car owned by Sam Miller, where this podcast started. All right. Well, this is a, an ambitious goal. I guess I'll say an admirable goal. I don't know. You don't have to consider it admirable. Maybe you consider it the opposite of that. But it's uh, it's definitely ambitious. So we will remind everyone, assuming you, you stay the course here before you leave on this journey, and uh, maybe we'll we'll have some sort of tracker set up in the Facebook group so people can greet you as you go and uh, give you some five-hour energy or something when they see you. But uh, it's a good idea. We wish you the best of luck, and we will check in with you again later in the year. Thanks so much. You can also find me on Twitter at MLB Road Trip. Yeah, perfect. That is uh, good branding. All right. Thanks, Michael. Good talking to you. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care.
Okay, that will do it for this episode. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already done so include Will Crummel, Mr. John C. Betzler, Jeff Tansel, Simon Penchansky, and Rob Hamilton. Thanks to all of you. You can join the aforementioned Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. And you can keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We will talk to you soon. No one